This week's episode is born purely out of the confusing and intertwined relationships that play within the bourbon ancestry of Kentucky. This confusing maze of relationships is birthed of the necessary and obstructionist nature of litigation and trademark protection. All of that, however, can create a great degree of confusion for the end consumer. It bubbles up the proverbial question, what's in a name? And no, we aren't talking about Four Roses today. The famous quote has transfigured into a much-used idiom illustrating a greater weight given to the content of an object's character rather than its given name. In a marketplace filled with history and ancestry, a name can carry great significance. So much significance that they are bought and sold regularly. Large sums of money are doled out to family operations as large corporate conglomerates gobble up market presence and notoriety in service to their bottom lines. Inevitably, those large corporate entities eventually start making decisions with finances in mind. Sometimes that approach works, and others, it's catastrophically a failure. Entry-proof, bottle-proof, ingredients, marketing, and any other facet of creating and selling whiskey becomes a spreadsheet instead of some source of pride. Names of historical significance end up relegated to the bottom shelf. What happens then when the families that carry the name in question decide it's time to restore significance and honor to their name? They are left with a choice of trying to buy back their own name or starting an entirely new brand. Letting people know they have a new brand and trying to skirt the trademark infringement that is inherent in just carrying their particular last name. While it might be frustrating for those families to attempt to re-enter the market, it can be even more troublesome for the average consumer. Whiskey geeks get off on understanding and being able to admonish those who don't know these facts. So today's episode is an elementary attempt to scratch the surface of the interconnected nature of the brand names, family names, and products that we can pull off the shelf on any given day. Welcome to the Embellish Podcast, where we like to talk about stories. We like to explore how embellishment makes a story better, how it allows us to connect more deeply with both the person telling the story and the subject of the story. Together, we will explore people, products, and places that have a story to tell. We'll navigate through the truth, half-truths, and outright lies and decide if truthiness even matters. This whole train of thought really began a couple of months ago while I was watching an Instagram Live. One of the hosts was drinking a bottle of whiskey and casually mentioned that it was a Beam product. Virtually immediately, one of our beloved whiskey geeks quickly informed us that the product was not, in fact, a Beam product. I quickly hopped onto the interwebs to disprove this person because I was 1000% certain that they were wrong. Ultimately, what I found was everyone was wrong and everyone was right. The Beam name is synonymous with bourbon in Kentucky. If you can think of a brand, Beam was likely involved in its creation, production, or bottling at some point in time. They've ebbed and flowed through numerous companies and held positions nearly everywhere. The problem with being a Beam is that it's very unlikely you'll ever be able to use your own last name if you want to launch your own product. That ship sailed a long time ago. So what were Paul and Steve Beam to do when they finally decided it was time to enter into the family business of distilling and bring one of the family brands back? Well, you get a little help from your mom. While the distillery is limestone branch, the two Beams got into trying to revive the Yellowstone brand once again into greatness. Yellowstone was a product that was initially founded by the Dant family. Luckily for these two Beams, their mother comes from the line of J.W. Dant. 
another storied brand in the world of whiskey. Over time, the brand had been passed from one owner to the next, ultimately resolving down to Luxco. This was an ideal target for revival. It had been relegated to the budget bourbon category. Initially, it was a sourced bottling of Luxco distillate, but over time, the beans have focused on bringing in more of their own distillate into the blend. Found in the limited edition and Yellowstone Select, you'll see a mixture of distillation experience and blending artistry creating a final product that has quickly become wildly sought after. So here we found ourselves in 2021 with a beam heading up the distilling and blending of a brand that at one point was owned by their ancestors. They proudly placed the signature on the back of the bottle of Stephen Beam. Is it clout chasing? I certainly don't believe so because the Beam brand isn't always synonymous with Premier Spirits branding. Ultimately, Yellowstone is a Beam product just not a Beam Suntory product. Sharing some common ground with the aforementioned Beams, I'll pivot to the next historical bourbon name that's making a resurgence in the current bourbon boom in the United States. Their story is much the same as the folks over at Yellowstone, carrying a name that's been sold, one that is irretrievably in the hands of a large corporate conglomerate. Hell, they even share some of the same lineage as the Beams. More recently, they've been in the news. They've scored headlines for two separate reasons. In the very recent past, the Dant family has been named in trademark litigation regarding their use of their own last name in their current venture, Log Still Distillery. Specifically, Heaven Hill takes objection to the dance use of their own last name in Log Still's production, distribution, marketing, advertising, or promotion. Secondly, they've garnered headlines because they are on the precipice of opening their distillery under the name Log Still Distillery. Who are the dance and why does Heaven Hill even care? Well, if you are a bourbon geek, you can just go ahead and skip the next few minutes. And if you aren't, well, stick with me. You can walk into many liquor stores in the great Commonwealth of Kentucky and find a bottle of J.W. Dant on the bottom shelf waiting for you to take home a great inexpensive bottling. But the Dant name hasn't always been relegated to the bottom shelf. It's a name that's interwoven into the DNA of bourbon in Kentucky. In the mid to late 1800s, the Dant family opened their own commercial distillery in Kentucky. They wisely, or not so wisely, depending on what era you hail from, named their offering after the patriarch, J.W. Dant. Some years down the line, a son of J.W. opened a distillery in Gethsemane that would be the genesis of the aforementioned Yellowstone brand. The J.W. Dant line continued to be sold during Prohibition as medicinal whiskey. After successfully weathering the storm of Prohibition, building a series of great brands in the mid-1900s, they sold the J.W. Dant brand, trademarks, and essentially the rights to their own name to United Distillers. Sale after sale and transition after transition ultimately resulted in Heaven Hill owning the brand and associated trademarks. That's the short version of the Dant legacy, which has been a highlight in almost any American whiskey book that's been published in the last 40 years. The new Dant legacy has at least from my perspective been very careful about their use of their own last name in their marketing material. Specific complaints from Heaven Hill read similar to the idea that Logstill is talking about the Dant legacy and reviving the Dant legacy. Did the current Dant say that? Yeah, yeah they did. And is it wrong? No, I really don't think so. Does Heaven Hill have a leg to stand on? Well, we'll let the courts decide on that. But I'll pose the question of, would the dance even approach marketing from this angle if the Heaven Hill brand had been treating the Dant name with any more respect than relegating it to the bottom shelf? Is it curious that Heaven Hill is introducing litigation so close to the opening of the new distillery? This is potentially one of the most cash-strapped portions of this particular operation's lifespan. They've made significant investments, and cash flows haven't begun in earnest. Is this a play on Heaven Hill's part to snuff out the Dant offering before it ever even sees the light of day? It sounds like an awful petty play for such a large brand. 
But ultimately, the question is this. If you have a surname of royalty in the bourbon world that has been sold, how do you re-enter the marketplace without inviting this type of litigation? One way you can re-enter the spirits industry and avoid litigation is to pursue a spirit other than bourbon. How does whiskey royalty even begin to explore the idea of bringing a spirit offering to the marketplace that isn't a whiskey of any kind? We'll explore it in the last family name that's trying to make a resurgence in the spirits industry. This family shares some commonality with the beans and the dance and the fact that all three families at one point have owned the old granddad brand. They've been integral to the creation and production of bourbon and whiskey in the state of Kentucky for as long as bourbon has been a thing. Turner Wathen and partner Jordan Morris have launched a rum brand titled Rolling Fork Spirits in honor of the 1700s distillery of the same name that the Wathen family can trace its bourbon distilling lineage to. The information about the Wathens and their history within the bourbon genealogy is both solid and limited. You'll find references to their distilling operations going back at least a couple of hundred years, but the tomes about their specifics are limited. If you dig, you'll find references to the American Medicinal Spirits Company, which was a clever manipulation of the prohibition laws just to stay alive, resulting ultimately in the sale of the distillery and trademarks to the United Distillers. You'll also find some really good material from Brian Hera over at Sippin' Corn detailing the litigious nature of this particular family. So maybe it's really no surprise that Turner Wathen is avoiding bourbon altogether. He's avoiding any real dispute on what he's doing and who he's competing with. Maybe there's something in the DNA of these families that pushes them to create something new, to forge ahead and craft offerings people want to consume. To me, that's the only way you have a bourbon royal deciding it was time to make rum. Regardless of the spirit category, the familial name carries weight. It carries with it an air of excellence that has to be tough to live up to. So put yourself in Turner and Jordan's shoes. You enjoy drinking and want to bring forth a new brand and concept. You could easily drum up venture capital with the last name alone, but you'd be pigeonholed into making bourbon or rye to start with. Instead, you decide to forge ahead into uncharted territory. You build your team and you plan your offering, only to find that in some sort of a mishap, there was a mistake and your 12-year rum was inadvertently mixed with rye whiskey. That sounds like a recipe for disaster. I got to hear an interview with Turner and Jordan about this specific situation, and luckily, when that happened, they had something with them that encouraged them to just go ahead and taste it and see what happens. The first offering that was to be a 12-year Trinidad rum finished in bourbon barrels quickly became a market offering of Fortuitous Union, a rum rye blend. That certainly is making lemonade out of grapefruits, if you ask me. Ultimately, the flagship product to me is the Kentucky Cask Series a series of small batch rums partially aged in Kentucky and blended by Jordan and Turner, each offering hints of bourbon on the profile. This spirit, however, is exactly what is needed if you want to convert a bourbon sipper to a rum sipper. Honestly, I hadn't had any rum straight, and I hadn't had any rum in a cocktail in probably 10 years before buying this bottle at the recommendation of some friends from an Instagram live event. This bourbon-adjacent brand and product embodies the pioneer spirit that was in the initial whiskey movements here in the United States, and it's continued existence is an exemplification of American consumerism. Let's put out a brand so that we can just drink with people. I like drinking. I'm making something, so come drink with me. If we can make some money along the way, well, so be it. If not, let's get drunk and break even. I'll be a little honest about this particular episode. When I originally began thinking about this idea, the high school version of me that was, in, that was enthralled with the idea of going to law school loved the thought of sorting through the difficult and sordid legal arguments about trademark infringement, copyright, and brand identity. But there's a reason I didn't make it to law school. It just wasn't a fun idea. Lawyers have argued trademark and licensing for the Wathens for years and will likely be doing the same for the dance in the years coming. We can easily apply 
some common sense logic to the topic, though. But it's just not that cut and dry. From one perspective, how can any ancestor enter into a legal agreement that will hamstring any future relative from using their own last name in marketing and branding material for 20, 40, or even 100 years after that name has been sold? It seems a little anti-American to take away someone's freedom to use their last name, or, or maybe it doesn't. From the other perspective, however, how does any corporation feel comfortable entering into any legal agreement with the looming thought that at some point in the distant or not so distant future, it might be patently ignored? because the idea of who are you to tell me what I can do with my own last name or someone's just going to find a way to skirt the legal agreement altogether. The whole subject is really indicative of the incestuous nature of historical bourbon brands in the United States. For the average consumer, it's virtually impossible to differentiate from the Beam Suntory beams and the Yellowstone beams. It's completely unrealistic for us to try and know the difference between the log cabin dance and the bottom shelf dance. Hopefully, what I've said here helps to illuminate on some of this, because honestly, I didn't know most of it before I started. A self-professing whiskey nerd had to take himself to school to prepare for this particular episode. On a final note, thank you for joining me today, and I hope you're preparing for our Instagram series called 30 Sips Till Summer. Starting 30 days out from the beginning of summer, we're going to start posting, using the hashtag 30 Sips Till Summer, uh, 30 different drinks that we're going to take. You may not have 30 bourbons to try, and that's okay, so maybe you just drink the same bourbon 30 times. Whatever it happens to be, but we're all approaching the time of the year where we can spend time outside, we can enjoy drinks with others, specifically in a, in a COVID environment where restaurants are relegated to limited capacity indoors, but outdoors are starting to open up. So I hope you join me in the 30 Sips Till Summer effort. Thanks for listening to the Embellish Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe. Check out our website at embellishpod.com and follow us on social media at Instagram and Twitter to keep up with what we have going on. If you have an idea about a story we should talk about, send it to us at embellishpod at gmail.com. And remember, whether famous or infamous, a good story mixed with a touch of embellishment makes the food you ate, the drink you drank, and the places you visited just a little more memorable. 